Good morning. Our first scripture today is taken from the book of Zechariah, and if you are using one of the Bibles that we provide, you'll find it on page 797. We're looking at Zechariah chapter 9, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 12. Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. The word of the Lord. And our New Testament reading comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and you'll find that on page 965. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 14 through 17. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal processions, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The word of the Lord. This morning we will be looking at John's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that that uh, first Palm Sunday. It's John chapter 12, beginning with verse 12, and again in our Bibles, this is found on page 899. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast, that's the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they'd heard he'd done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to Jerusalem at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, 
Truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The Gospel of Christ. We celebrate this day as Christians all around the world because on this particular day, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the Passover season in order to fulfill the meaning of Passover. Indeed, he rode into Jerusalem in order to fulfill the very meaning of Israel as a people, as well as the meaning of its sacrificial system, having been the perfect Israelite, having fulfilled the law of loving God perfectly and loving others perfectly. He now completes this act of love as he rides into the city. John distinguishes four particular groups that greeted him. And I want to ask you this morning simply to walk around this text with me and stand for a moment with each one of these four groups, seeking to see this scene from their perspective. You may well find yourself this morning in one of those groups. And then we step back and look at Jesus' perspective as he speaks and responds to what he sees happening around him. And finally, we will simply ask what perspective we should take on all of this. First, we see the crowd, this vast crowd that had gone up to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, but then that all began to gather together at one of the entrances because they'd heard that this miracle worker, this mighty teacher, this person that was in the the news a lot because the authorities seemed to be trying to stop him from going forward. This one was on his way into the city, and they wanted to see him. And when they heard that he had actually raised a man from the dead, this story of Lazarus, they gathered palms. Could this be he? Could this be the one that was prophesied? Could this be the Messiah? And they greet him with shouts of, of praise, but really with cries of save us. Because again, it's easy to forget that. It seems that by the first century, that word Hosanna that's taken from Psalm 118 had become an ascription of praise and celebration. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But Hosanna literally means save us, Lord, save us. He'd ridden into Jerusalem to save them. But the salvation that the crowds were seeking was not the salvation they needed, nor the salvation that he had come to bring. And so the perspective of the crowd was one 
of tremendous expectation. All of the misunderstandings that surrounded the Old Testament prophecies were filling their hearts and they thought if he's the Messiah, he will throw off Rome. He will get rid of the taxes that Rome has imposed on us. He's going to restore Israel to its former greatness and take the throne of Father David and once again make us great among the nations of the world. They were longing for a leader as every age longs for a leader. And they were filled, I'm sure, with much of the same dissatisfaction and cynicism and yet under it a sort of hope that marks the insurgents in America on both the left and the right, those on the left saying it's a rigged economic system, we've got to tear the whole thing down. Those on the right saying, We're, the nations mock us, we don't have any cause for pride, let's be great again. Always looking for some strong leader to come and make us great and make us prosperous. Nothing ever changes. It was the same back then. And so, of course, the cries of Hosanna would change before the week was out to cries of crucify, when he turned out most emphatically not to be the kind of ruler they were seeking. When he came not to fulfill their hopes and dreams, not to establish their little kingdoms. And yet, I wonder how many of us today are here because we're facing things in our lives that we hope that if we just get a little religion might be cleared up. If maybe we can just make a little deal here this morning, perhaps our lives will be smoother and better. Make no mistake, Jesus rode into the city to save. And he comes into this place this morning in order to save the lost, to set the prisoner free. But it doesn't ever look the way that we hope and dream that it will look. The second group that is there in the midst of the crowd and surrounding Jesus are his own disciples. And if the crowd is still, at this point of the week, marked by this expectation and anticipation, the disciples are already beginning to be marked by confusion and one might even say frustration. Where do I get that? Look again at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things. Not yet. Only later, he says, after Jesus was glorified. That means after he had died and risen and spent 40 days explaining things to them and then ascended into the Father's presence. And I suspect he includes in that then the Spirit being poured out. Only then did they begin to grasp. They are frustrated. They are confused. Why? Because as Peter had said to him, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? I told you years ago, I was so enjoying when my kids were small listening to that lovely Stephen Curtis Chapman song, uh, We Will Abandon It All for the Sake of the Call, No Other Reason at All but the Sake of the Call, Simply Devoted to Live and to Die for the Sake of the Call. He describes the disciples as having left everything simply for the sake of the call. And then as I was listening, I thought, it's a beautiful song, but it isn't true. 
They didn't leave just for the sake of the call. Peter said, go check it out in Matthew chapter 20, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What's in it for us? And Jesus said, in the age to come, much, but now, persecution. And my favorite scene, James and John, I have a brother, James, that I can see. Well, no, I can't see us getting our mother to do it. She never would do things like this for us. But James and John got their mother to go to Jesus and ask for his seats of honor. Jesus, all the way from Caesarea Philippi, when he set his face toward Jerusalem, has been telling them, I'm going to Jerusalem to be delivered over to my enemies and put to death. And while he's saying that, they're nodding and then going back and arguing over which of them will be greatest when they get there. They are refusing to listen to what he says. Why? Because like the crowd, they have their picture of what salvation is to look like. And it obviously, in their estimation, involves them in some pretty significant places of honor. And that's what they're obsessed about. Do do I get a seat close? Who's going to get Chancellor of the Exchequer? Who's going to be, you know, domestic uh, affairs? Who's going to deal with Rome? they're, They're divvying up governmental positions. They're like people in a presidential political campaign around a candidate planning already what's going to happen when he gets there. What does he do? He gets a colt of a donkey, the most humble thing you can do. Now, it had been prophesied that the Messiah would come on that, but they'd forgotten it. It's in response to that that they're confused, and John, who was one of them, looks back and says, you know, we forgot that text. We'd forgotten that part of the Bible, anything that had to do with humility. I I remember Gordon Fee when I was a student at Gordon-Conwell. Gordon Fee was uh, one of our New Testament professors, and he used to say to us sometimes, what I'd like you to do tonight is go back and read very carefully all those verses in your Bible that you did not underline. (laughs) Because that's God's Word, too. The disciples had their key little verses about, you know, the glory that would come to those with, but they'd missed all the rest. Only later would they discover. So the crowds are still filled with expectation, but they'll be disillusioned before the week is out. The disciples are already beginning to be profoundly disillusioned. And how many, truth be told, come to the Lord in times of great difficulty as we ought, but what are we seeking? When we come in times of difficulty, is it because we're, we're saying, I can't do it anymore, my way is a mess, I want your way? Then, praise God, that's, that's right. But isn't it often because we say, I'm not, I'm not achieving my goals, I need help. You know, this, my marriage isn't what I want it to be. Would you please come fix my marriage? My, my kids aren't behaving What do I need to do? I'll go to church. I'll give to mission. I mean, just get my kids on board. Now, those are good things to want a good marriage, to want your kids. But that's that's not why we come to the Lord if we come rightly. I confess as I pray for my children daily and my grandchildren, I always reflexively have all these great ideas that I think, you know, Lord... I start listing, okay, this is what you need to do with this one. This is what you need to do with that one. 
And somewhere along the the way, if I'm at all spiritually tuned in, I have to stop and say, whatever it takes, whatever it takes, you love them more than I do. Whatever it takes to bring them to your heart. I've got all these plans, but my plans might take them the shortest route to hell. <laughs> you just bring them home, home to your heart. Fill their lungs with your breath so they might sing your praises forever. The disciples will get there, but they're not there yet. So the crowds are still filled with expectation, but the disciples with frustration and and confusion. There's another group there, the religious leaders. The Pharisees, as I said last week, when you read Pharisee, think Presbyterian pastor. That's pretty much it. You know, they're the the, they're the ones who really believe the Bible and love to teach the Bible and, and make sure everybody else understands the Bible the way that they do and who at the very heart of it don't get what it's about. And they are perpetually offended at Jesus because Jesus prefers spending his time with the broken people whom they don't consider worth the time, whom they consider to be the kind of people who pollute you if you're with them, And they can't understand why he's not all the time at their Bible studies and prayer meetings and spending time at their dinners. But he's not. He's always out there, you know. He's not here at Cedar Springs. He's over there at at the ale house, for Pete's sake. What's he doing over there? And who are those people? That's the problem. That's Jesus. And so they are filled with consternation. And they say, what's the use The whole world's going after him. Look at this. When I read this this week, I had to start laughing because I had just heard some uh, establishment Republicans talking about their frustration at trying to stop Donald Trump. That's that's how the Pharisees felt. Don't draw the wrong comparison there. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) well, If I speak my whole mind here, I'll be fired. But no, I'm not. No comparison between um, Jesus and Trump. (laughs) Excuse me, I have to. That's just too horrible to even conceive. The the reality is, though, this is how how frustrated they were. Everything had gotten out of their hands, just the way that I think leaders in both parties today feel. I mean, they feel like, I mean, you talk to Democrats, this you know, what, what if our candidate gets indicted? What if this other one uh, ends up there and people realize that he wants to get rid of the free market? <laughs> what, you know, what, what over here? I mean, the people in charge on left and right are feeling like the Pharisees were feeling. You know, we were in charge of this show a little bit ago. What happened? Nobody, the whole world's gone after these others. And that's where they were. And tragically, the church is hurt the worst, not by people out there, not by the so-called new atheists. There's nothing new about the new atheism. It's hurt worst by people within who are there for their own power, their own reasons, wanting to control Jesus, wanting to make him dance to their tune. May God have mercy on those of us who've made a good living off of the gospel. I confess I always wince when I read 
Paul's words where he said, I had a right to be paid for preaching, but I decided no, I would support myself with my hands so that no one could accuse me of being in this for the wrong reason. And the church is filled with people in it for the wrong reason. And universities, religious studies department, are filled with people who lost their faith and had to do something with their education. So we'll teach the study of religion. And the corrosive, awful effect of people who profess to be in the house but who are just destroying the foundations. It's always been there. And here it surrounded Jesus in the religious leaders who saw their prerogatives, their way of being honored and prospering. They saw all that tumbling down if this one should be accepted. And there was yet another group, a fourth, the outsiders. Remember the Greeks who showed up. Now these do not seem to have been what the Bible speaks of and Jewish tradition speaks of as the Gentile God-fearers. Those were people who came to Israel because they believed in Israel's God and some of them were stopped at the idea of circumcision before the days of anesthesia. But some of them came on in all the way and actually became Jews and lived as Jews. Others drew that close, circumcision stopped them, but in every other way, they sought to worship the God of Israel, to know the God of Israel. And um, these were not those. These were just some guys who seemed to have been religious tourists. They'd heard about this great celebration in Israel and thought they'd sail over and see it. it Passover is a good time to see it. The weather's great and you know, Jerusalem's so much fun when it's all filled, you can eat all this interesting food. And if you go into the court of the Gentiles, you can actually hear the bleeding of the lambs and, and the cries of the salesmen and the, the smells of the sacrifices. Now they've seen this crowd. Who is this? Who, who's this guy? Oh, this is Yeshua. He's a, a mighty prophet. He may even be the Messiah. I mean, all this excitement. He's worked miracles. He's, he teaches not like the other teachers, but as someone with authority from God. They think, man, we picked the right day to be here. Let's see if we can talk to him. Maybe he'll do something for us. <laughs> okay, I'm going to tell the story. I don't think I've ever told it. <clears throat> I didn't in the first service. It's privileged. <laughs> um, whatever your politics, I've got to tell you, I, I always had a warm place in my heart for old George Bush the first, and especially after this story. True story, I knew the woman. woman that I got to know worked for him for years in uh, Texas in politics. And um, one day she was in D.C. and was told, hey, the president's flying in, we've got to go down and meet him. So she went over. And he saw her in the crowd and motioned her to come over. And he and Barbara were getting off. They were going to be taken back in the limo. And so she thought it was something about, he was running again at that time against Bill Clinton. And she thought it was something about running. So she ran over and got in. Yes, Mr. President. He said, I wanted to ask you something. So off they go. You can just see him doing that. Uh, no guile. Uh, he said, um, I shouldn't say no guile. He used to run the CIA. But um, he said to her, you're Episcopalian like me, aren't you? She thought, oh no, what, what is this about? She said, yes, Mr. President. 
And he said, well, did, did you get into the renewal movement? And she said, yes, Mr. President. She noticed Barbara was kind of looking at him like, where's this going? And he said, have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit? And she thought, and Barbara now is going, George, what is this? And he said, no, 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 this is serious. I'm serious. He said, do you speak in tongues? And she thought, oh, no, I'm going to lose my job over this. But she said, yes, Mr. President. And he said, say something. (laughs) She said, Barbara went, George, how dare you? That's a personal thing. And he said, well, I've heard about it all my life. I just wanted to hear it once. (laughs) I think that's what these guys were like. They just wanted to meet Jesus and hear it once. They wanted to see something, say something, do something. We hear you do miracles. Do a little something for us. <laughs> and, and so they seek the meeting through his disciples. And of course, the meeting never takes place. And the reason is that in spite of all of the people that will kind of show up on Easter Sunday, Easter Sunday, almost every church in America has to add a service or two because so many people come. Now, if you're only going to go to church once a year, that's the day to go, because that's what it's about. But I have to laugh. There was a cartoon I saw years ago that, of a, a pastor on, uh, standing in front of the church sign greeting people, and it says, Easter Sunday, you know, he is risen. And this guy's walking by and saying, you know, pastor, you're kind of in a rut. And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, every time I hear you, you're preaching on the resurrection. <laughs> it's... <laughs> Uh, there is that tendency of a lot of people just to do it, maybe Christmas also, but Christmas and Easter. Like these, like these Greeks who really just want a little bit of something, an, another experience. They like the music, they like the, you know, it's just, it's a rite of spring. Jesus doesn't even meet with them. When his disciples, Philip and Andrew, go to speak to him, say, they're these fellows who've said, sir, we would see Jesus. He responded, the hour has come. Up until now, every time he's pressed to perform for somebody or do something, he said, it's not yet the hour. My time has not yet come. But now Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he says, because nobody else understood it, not the crowds who were filled with expectation, not the disciples filled with frustration, not the religious leaders filled with consternation, not these spiritual surfers who were there out of, I guess, fascination. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he begins to teach them. He says, if you would have life, you must die. If you try to hold on to your life, you'll lose it. This wasn't the only time Jesus said this to them. Those of you who are in college, of course you love your life. It's, it's all you've got. <laughs> Who doesn't love his or her own life? But Jesus says there's a way to love it that will end up destroying it. The one who who loves his life, the one who loves her life, 
in the sense that this is my moment to grab. The beer ads really say it best. <laughs> to grab all the gusto. I only go around. I mean, the idea that this is my moment and this is all it's about and so I want to grab what attracts me and the people that are in my life can somehow, I, I wouldn't hurt them, but if I can manipulate the pieces and, and say what I need to say in order to get what I want and if I've got to worship, if I've got to give, if, I've got to, if that's got to be part of my life to get God on board, great. But I've got to have my life means something when I look back on it. And in order for it to mean something, these are the things that have to happen. That is to love one's life unto death. It's to squeeze the life out of it. And Jesus says, there's a cross for me. There's a cross for you. I have to die to make you right with the Father. You have to die to receive what I've done and make me known to the world around you. And if you do that, if you do that, you will be with me. You'll be with me. And my Father will honor you. That's the promise. Totally different perspective. But you have to let it go now. You just have to let it go. What should be our perspective then? Oh, Paul said it beautifully in that text that Penny read to us from 2 Corinthians. He spoke of another triumphal procession, not Jesus' triumphal procession into Jerusalem, but the kind of triumphal procession that the Roman Senate would give a victorious general. They'd let him ride into Rome behind four beautiful white stallions, surrounded by the trophies of his battles, and in the rear slaves being drawn to their death. And behind him stood a slave with a gold Etruscan crown that he held over his head as he whispered in the conqueror's ear, respice poste, hominem momento te, look behind you. Remember, you are but a man. Paul did not place himself up there in the chariot. He placed himself in those being led into the arena to their death. And he said, we are the aroma of, for some, the aroma of life, for others, the aroma of death. For those who are being saved, our sacrifice is the fragrance of life itself. What should be our perspective? That we follow Jesus to his death so that we might follow him into his victory and into life. Is that life worth it for you this morning? You see, that's the whole show. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. It's not a little prayer that someone leads us in so that we've got all that taken care of. Believing in Jesus is believing Jesus when he says, I'm going the way of life. All the rest is going toward destruction and death. Choose life. Follow me and live.